Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Contractors are wary of the latest proposed rule giving DOD access to their IT systems. It's part of an effort to improve cybersecurity with incident reporting and information sharing. Another rule would impose new requirements on contractors' unclassified systems. Reaction now from the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, these rules are just coming out one after another. They are FAR rules, which means they will affect procurements and DOD really getting deep into the knickers of contractors' systems. That's exactly right, Tom, and thanks again for having me. We've seen a flurry of cyber-related and information system-related proposed rules coming out. And these two rules that you highlighted, you know, we had a lengthy time to comment on them. And I would highlight also that it's not just the Department of Defense. These are FAR Council rules, so they're applicable government-wide. And so it's not just DOD. It is the whole of government. And in some cases, as a previous guest on your show had discussed, it could give Department of Homeland Security and the FBI access to your system and what the government is calling full access, which means if there's an incident, go into your system and investigate, including parts of your contractor system that are not dedicated to government work. So it really, in our view, is ripe for uh, correction and amendment in terms of when we go into final rulemaking, because it is really overstepping on the government's part. Sounds like you'd have to designate someone from the government to have administrative privileges on your system. It does sound a bit like that. The incident reporting piece is something that we've discussed at length with both our member companies as well as with the government about you know what is an appropriate time frame once you have a cyber incursion, uh, how do you report it, et cetera, and to whom. These two rules do go a bit far in terms of not offering uh, live actions to, to government contractors. If you have a government person with admin privileges or not going into your system and something happens as a result of that access, we believe federal contractors should be not held liable for that. I can see the speeches now. We've had all these unelected sysadmins coming in and <laughs> messing with our <laughs> systems. Uh, well, anyway, we, we won't go there on that one. So what have you proposed specifically to modify it should they decide to take your comments in? Well, for the first case that you mentioned, which is on cyber threat and incident reporting and information sharing, we've talked a lot about definitional changes. What does full access mean? And we'd really like to see the government limit it to contractor systems that are performing government work, not the whole enterprise system. We're also talking a bit about protection of what is called government data or government-related data. You know, A lot of companies have trade secrets, have pricing models, have sensitive information on their systems. And one of the rules does go in to say, you know, if it is on a system that performs government work, that is government-related data. That's an issue in terms of intellectual property, and it's an issue in terms of privacy. Yeah, it sounds like it's an issue in terms of law, even. You know, there are existing clauses out there that do protect intellectual property and the contractor's right to own the data that it creates. We believe that the government is trying to get at the use of third-party data, meaning the government holds a license for another company's information, and they're lending it to the contractor performing the work. Therefore, it should have protections because the government is facilitating access to that data. We don't argue about that, but we do think that if you are a contractor and you are creating data and you have access to the data that you yourself own, it shouldn't automatically be transferred to the government. And anyway, if this is all in a cybersecurity-related context, maybe they should have a rule or the rule should limit the government access simply to your logs for analysis. 
to understand what might have happened in an incident. I think that's exactly right. And to the extent that an incident is of concern to the contractor itself, you know, we don't want to presume that the contractor doesn't care when there's been a cyber incursion. They care very, very deeply about this. So understanding what happened and doing the forensics on it and then preventing similar incursions in the future is critical. And so what we believe and we've said in our comments is that, you know, the government needs to talk to the industrial partners about intellectual property, trade secrets, litigation liabilities, and claims against the federal government in the cyber realm. And as I mentioned, there's been a flurry of cyber-related proposed rules, and we do think it's wise of the government to try to harmonize those. Again, the devil is in the details, and if you make a definition in one proposed rule in one way and it has a different definition in another proposed rule, there's a lot of cracks through which you could fall. Well, they're certainly flooding the zone. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And the other one rule that you're talking about, too, is the standardizing cybersecurity requirements for unclassified federal information systems would impose rules on what your systems should look like, how they're configured. You've got some issues there, too. It's very similar to what we have to the other rule. And I don't know if this was by design, but the comments were due on both on the same day. So these are very, very fresh in my mind as our comments are trying to mutually reinforce each other. And part of it is, again, comes down to definitions. How do they define full access? How do they define government data and government-related data? We are concerned that if they try to put this clause or this set of clauses in every contract, including things for commercial off-the-shelf items, it's a little bit, again, flooding the zone. I like that phrase that you use, Tom, because there are certain contracts where this kind of information or this kind of rule should be applied and others where it just doesn't make sense. And one area where some of our members highlighted a real concern is if you are a company that has several government contracts and you have one security incident on your system, what are they going to investigate? Which was considered the federal information system and how do they dive into that? You know, it's a concern that many members had about the onerous reporting requirement and do they have to report for every single contract? Are they all considered federal information systems? And so, again, the devil is in the details. We're working through this and we hope to see some of these changes in the final rule. And one more thing I wanted to ask you about is that the member companies are scratching their heads and turning to the council for what to expect in the upcoming presidential election. I can just hear them now. Stephanie, what's going to happen if it's Trump or Biden? You know, and so it's going to be Trump or Biden from the looks of it. So never have we been able to narrow it down so early, it seems. You know, Tom, that's exactly the point that I make to member companies. We've had several companies come and say, all right, so look in your crystal ball and see what's going to happen in terms of contract spend and, and what the budgets are going to look like. And historically, PSC has looked at presidential elections closer to the actual general election. But it seems that the primary system has already picked winners and losers here, at least so far. It seems that the candidates are predetermined. And so we can look into the crystal ball a little bit. You know, President Biden has signed out more than 130 executive orders. Some of them will be rescinded under a different president if that happens. So we're trying to do a quick analysis of what policy issues might stick and what might go by the wayside under a potential Republican president. And so we're looking at that. We're also analyzing the transition from 2016 to 2017 to see what happened to budget requests and the contract spending. We're also going way back into, well, it's not technically way back to the origin of our country, but it is back to the Obama administration, right, with the two terms of under a Democratic president and what happened with contract spending there. You know, it is 
I hate to use the word unprecedented because it's been hyped up over the last four years. Everything seems to be unprecedented. But we do have an opportunity here to do some analysis about presidential politics earlier in the cycle than we have in the past. Well, things may not be unprecedented right now, but they've never happened before. So we can put it that way. Yeah, I think that's true. I think also we talked about the flurry of cyber-related activities. There have been a lot of proposed rules coming out in recent months, and that's not unusual in this part of a presidential term because everything that was put in place in the first year is finally hitting rulemaking now. And I would mention that in the first six weeks here in 2024, PSC has commented on eight proposed rules or other opportunities to comment And that is probably twice the pace that we usually go. So eight rules in six weeks means that we're all going to be very, very busy at PSC going forward. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.